Welcome to the FedSpeak podcast, brought to you by MI Market News. I'm Pedro da Costa, and today I'm joined by Ed Notek, who is the research director for the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. In that role, he's not only a chief economic advisor to Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, but also oversees the research department there and its staff. Dr. Notek also leads the bank's Center for Inflation Research and has done extensive work on issues ranging from monetary economics and forecasting to inflation dynamics and inflation expectations. Before joining the Cleveland Fed, he was also a vice president and economist at the Kansas City Fed, so he's been in the system for a while. Welcome to FedSpeak. It's really nice to have you today. Thanks for having me, Pedro. So let's start with the kind of step back question. If you could just tell us a little bit about your role. I think a lot of people don't quite understand what research directors do at, at the regional feds, and it's a, it's a fairly interesting position, and, and you're fairly new to it. So could you tell us a little bit about your new job? Sure. I think I'm still learning the ropes, or so I think I can play that card for a little while longer, at least. Um, so as you had said, uh, the research director role is one of the primary advisors to each of the reserve bank presidents around the system. So, you know, we take a a key role in supporting monetary policy preparations. Um, We also play a a key role in leading the research department at each reserve bank. Each reserve bank has its own researchers who are doing research on the economy, research on local conditions, regional conditions, coming up with their own view of what would be appropriate for monetary policy. Each department has its own strategic priorities. So as you mentioned, we have the Center for Inflation Research here in Cleveland. We also have a program in economic inclusion. Um, and we have you know, different specialties from other reserve banks. And some reserve banks just choose to focus on different areas, depending on geography or history or the interests of their staffs. Some of, our, some of the other things we do include helping to lead the briefing process. So I play a key role in organizing the briefing process at the bank, helping to coordinate that. I'm getting uh, President Mester the content that she needs to make an informed decision at each FOMC meeting. And beyond that, there's kind of the managerial and supervisory responsibilities of hiring staff, developing staff, um, coming up with the strategic direction for the department, and when I have time, conducting my own research, believe it or not, too. Well, it sounds like a, a big job, but also a really interesting one. So congrats it again is. on the new role. You also, you guys launched a, a Center for Inflation Research, I guess, in 2018, when inflation was still a fairly low priority issue uh, for the economy at the time. And I, I assume you guys are pretty busy now that uh, things are a little bit different. We are. So in 2018, you know, if you go way back pre-pandemic, one of the questions was, why is inflation so low? And so at the time, you know, one of the questions we were trying to answer was, well, why is inflation kind of low and kind of staying low? Uh, At a high level, what we are aiming for with the center is to be a resource to researchers, policymakers, and the general public on all things inflation. So how do we go about doing that? So on the research side of things, we're very involved in conducting cutting-edge research on timely topics. Um, Right now, inflation expectations are a hot topic in inflation research. Um, The the, the size of the the shape of the Phillips curve, the the size of the inflationary pressures in the economy are hot topics. We're looking into those. And so we've been doing a lot of research here, especially on on inflation expectations. Uh, We have several surveys that we've been either running or helping to run or are working with. Um, We're writing working papers, putting out a lot of content in those dimensions. On policy, uh, we aim to inform policymakers about inflation-related developments. Um, So some of that happens through the stuff that we put on our website. We put a number of indicators on our website that are 
inflation related. So uh, we developed the median CPI and the trim mean CPI in the 1990s. We have those, we have measures of inflation expectations, inflation nowcasts, inflation charting. Um, so there's a lot of resources there. And those are offshoots of our research that help to inform policy, but also help to inform the public. And of course, there's lots of overlap with the research that we're doing. Um, some of that helps to inform the policy process and think in terms of things like, what are the drivers of inflation expectations? Um, how concerned should we be about wage price spirals? You know, we have kind of research that looks at those and then helps to inform the policy process. And then lastly, you know, we're, we're very interested in informing the public about inflation, the drivers of inflation, and just increasing public understanding. So we have an Inflation 101 page, which as its name suggests, is really designed to help to inform people just about the basics. What is inflation? What drives it? Why does the Fed care about inflation? What's it doing about inflation? Uh, we have a, a video series where we use stop motion animation to illustrate key inflation concepts. And we give a number of outlook talks. We speak with the media just to help to talk about you know, what's going on with inflation. Uh, what are some of the basics that we should know um, if, you're, if you're a member of the public? And we do provide some research that's relatively accessible through our economic commentary series. Um, and then our indicators might also be of public interest. So you know, overall, uh, we have a lot of different a lot of different pokers in the fire, so to speak. We're trying to just advance the state of knowledge regarding inflation. We're doing lots of stuff. We're doing lots of survey work to try and understand more about inflation expectations, especially with inflation being elevated. Um, we're always working on improving our, our forecasting models with inflation. So some of our working papers are very focused on how can we uh, build a better mousetrap, so to speak? How can we improve our inflation forecast? How can we get inflation forecasts to be more accurate um, across a wider variety of circumstances? So that's a little bit of what we're doing in inflation center these days. Interesting stuff. Thank you for that. And and so you mentioned this kind of suite of indicators that you guys have in-house, you know, in addition to all the indicators that we get from the government. I'm wondering what kind of what kind of an inflation inflation picture these indicators like the trim mean and the nowcast paint in your view. How sticky are inflation pressures likely to remain? Great question. And so certainly we, we put a number of resources out there for the public. So our inflation nowcasts are really just trying to predict the next one to two readings on inflation. Um, we recently put out a piece that suggests that um, over the last few years and even over a longer period, they've, they've tended to do pretty well. Uh, you know, no model is perfect. Every forecast um, you know, is sometimes gonna hit it right on the head and sometimes be way off. But in general, uh, the model we use for these inflation nowcasts is pretty good. Um, it's pretty accurate. That helps with near-term forecasting. Over a medium horizon, we have a, a variety of models that we run. Uh, many of them are in-house, um, but you know, we, we look at different models that are estimated over different horizons. They have different properties. And uh, we look at those. We also look at like outside forecasters. We look at judgmental forecasts. Um, there's the wisdom of the crowd in the forecasting literature that suggests that you know, when you look across a bunch of experts, if you look at kind of you know, the average or the median, um, that's usually a pretty good sense of where things are going. So we're really taking all those things into account when we're thinking about inflation prospects and not just thinking about the, the modal or most likely case, but also where are the risks? Are the risks, you know, that inflation will be higher? What are some scenarios that could generate that? What would happen to create lower inflationary pressures? So, you know, I think maybe it would just be helpful to think about kind of two broad camps. So you kind of have a number of models that, um, are estimated, especially more recently. They think that inflation, um, you know, there's, there's a fair probability that inflation could come down pretty quickly once some of the pandemic-specific factors start to unwind. 
Uh, you know, just as a reminder, before the pandemic, we had a strong labor market and low inflation, like we mentioned a moment ago. So, you know, a lot of those models would say, okay, you know, we have high inflation now. It should start to come down over the course of this year and then continue coming down next year. But you also have other models that might suggest there's just more fundamental persistence in the inflation process. Um, some of the work recently of uh, Randy Verbrugge and Saeed Zaman here at the bank put out you know, a particular model in which um, they estimate that inflation is quite persistent and that you know, given where you're starting, um, if you believe that inflation is quite persistent and this model kind of shows that that's historically been the case, um, that would suggest that it could take some time for inflation to come back down. So, you know, I think we like to, to look at different models. Um, I think they're all useful. Um, they all have elements of truth to them. Then you, you know, we think about kind of where are the probabilities of that and, you know, kind of try and weight them accordingly. So where do you expect inflation to end 2023? And, and are, is there an upside risk to that forecast? You know, my modal forecast is that we will see some inflation relief. Personally, I'm in like the, the three and a half to 4% camp with some upside risk, but also there's some downside risk there too. You know, I think that, you know, if we had to weight it, maybe it's skewed a little bit to the upside, but, you know, there, there are scenarios in which inflation could come down more quickly. Uh, you know, this is really an unprecedented scenario in which we find ourselves. History is useful, um, but you also have to kind of be thinking about the specific factors that might be affecting inflation today too. And what is your sense of how well anchored inflation expectations actually are? Because as you mentioned, it, it kind of depends where you look. Market-based measures have stayed pretty well anchored throughout this inflation period, whereas kind of short, short horizon inflation expectations of consumers and businesses, which you could argue are important for price and wage setting, have actually picked up quite a bit. Yeah. So there's a lot of interest in inflation expectations. And this is one where there's interest on the academic side. And there's also interest in the policy side. And so these two, these two groups are kind of, you know, merging and interacting and talking um, in, in very similar terms about what's going on with inflation expectations. Policymakers think they're important. Academics think they're important. How to best measure them, which measure matters. You know, so that's actually a key debate in the literature is you have a lot of different measures. You know, so policymakers oftentimes think about long-term inflation expectations, and they're very concerned about long-term expectations being anchored. And for good reason, right? Because, you know, if you think inflation is going to persist at a high level, then you might want to adjust your actions. If you think it's just going to be high temporarily, maybe that won't affect your actions so much. And yet, you know, there's academic work that tends to focus on the exact opposite that suggests, oh, it's the short run expectations that really help to affect behavior today. So, you know, a lot of interesting work going on there. The bottom line that I think of is that the longer that inflation remains high, uh, the more likely it is that that in high inflation is going to get entrenched in the economy. It's going to become harder to bring down. And I think, you know, that's really the lesson of the 1960s and 1970s that I think policymakers have taken away right correctly. So, you know, certainly on the negative side here, our own surveys of consumers and firms who are, you know, the price setters, the wage setters, and, and the, the demand side, you know, they really suggest that people expect inflation to be pretty high over the next year not out of control, but still pretty high. So we have two measures in particular that I'm thinking of. We have our indirect consumer inflation expectations series that we, we update every week. So that's around 6%. Um, and then we've recently taken over the survey of firm inflation expectations. And that's also about 6% over the next year. So, you know, those are, those are pretty high. Um, you know, it is the case that sometimes there's some upward bias there. Oftentimes consumers think that inflation is going to be higher than it actually turns out to be. Um, but you know that that's that's some cause for concern. Now, 
You know, on the flip side, on the positive side, you know, we also have some work here at the Cleveland Fed that tries to get at this notion of wage price spirals. And when we ask consumers and we try and disentangle, um, you know, what's driving their expectations, we really find that there's not all that much evidence of one of these expectational wage price spirals at play. So, you know, so again, I don't think we want to rest on our laurels and say that that can't happen. That's at least a little bit of good news to suggest that maybe it's not happening just yet. But, you know, the fact that those inflation expectations are high, that, you know, is a cause for some concern, I think. And the quicker you get inflation down, uh, hopefully the, the sooner you can help to re-anchor those inflation expectations at the level that would be appropriate. In that context, how much has the recent labor market strength, which in fact you could argue is the January jobs report that really kicked off this kind of uh, repricing of market expectations for Fed funds, you know, fairly sharply higher. Uh, how much is the job market an impediment to the Fed's achievement of its 2% inflation target at this point? Yeah. So again, I, I think it's always helpful to take a step back and recall that before the pandemic, you know, economists were really debating if the Phillips curve was dead or sleeping. Um, and there was no really no real resolution there. Now, I think people are like, oh, the Phelps curve has, has, has awakened, uh, you know, and it, it's all of a sudden there. So I think one perennial challenge when we think about the Phillips curve is just how tight is the labor market, right? Because this is, it's tough to know how tight the labor market is. Um, there are no neon signs. There's no big billboards that say it. So you're always trying to infer how tight the labor market is and then what type of inflationary pressure that's going to lead to. So before the pandemic, again, uh, we saw what we thought at the time was a pretty strong labor market alongside low inflation. Now, you know, I think we, we have a, a very, very strong labor market. And it's kind of a question of, okay, well, how strong is too strong? How much inflationary pressure is it putting into the economy and what to do about it? So yeah, as you pointed out, you know, we just last month or two months ago, January saw unemployment rate fall to another multi-decade low. Lot, lots of jobs were added. And yet, you know, the labor market doesn't feel quite as tight as it did a year ago. So just anecdotally, I remember driving around a year ago, you'd see we're hiring signs everywhere. You know, now they're still out there, but there are fewer. Um, there seems to be less froth in the labor market. And, and you know, I think this is corroborated by some of the official job openings. Numbers have come down a little bit. Wage growth, it's high, but it's come down a little bit. Uh, you know, I have some work with a colleague, Saeed Zaman here, that finds that there's generally a stronger, tighter wage Phillips curve than a price Phillips curve. So yeah, that, I think that's consistent with some easing in the labor market. We've seen some easing in inflation compared with last summer, let's say. But you know, to your point, I think it's still there's still evidence that we need to see more moderation in the labor market, more moderation in labor demand, or some improvements in labor supply to get the labor market to a, a better place um, in order to have less inflationary pressure in the economy. And this certainly ties into kind of the services side of the economy, where you know I think there's concerns about inflationary pressures there being quite persistent because of their connections to the tightness of the labor market. Absolutely. And I, I wonder how how restrictive in that context you think policy actually is at the moment against that economic backdrop. And at the same time, how, what are the chances of a soft landing, you know, given that need to, to temper labor conditions? Good question. So uh, similar to estimating or assessing the, the tightness of the labor market, the tightness of policy is one of those, uh, one of those things that's very tough to disentangle, right? Because um, in an academic sense, you're trying to determine where is the real interest rate today relative to some neutral rate that I can't really observe. And so some of the ways that we observe that is through things like growth and the state of, state of the labor market, state of inflation. So on the, the growth side of things, 
Um, you know, we've certainly seen conditions slow. Um, you've certainly seen a response in the housing market compared with what we had been where we had been before. Growth overall, GDP growth has slowed. Consumer spending has slowed over time. You know, on the labor side of things, you know, there were maybe some signs that things were slowing, but then, you know, you got a, a really strong January. Um, it's a little bit tough to know what to make of that. It, there could be some noise in there, but there could also be a lot of signal. Uh, you know, I think we kind of have to see some more data to determine if that's signal, if that suggests that there's a reacceleration at play or not. You know, you saw corroboration in terms of consumer spending that was also pretty strong, inflation that was pretty strong in January, right? So there's a, a lot of points that seem to be adding up to suggest that maybe there's more momentum in the economy than some people were thinking. If you think about a soft landing, uh, forecasting is very hard. I think it, it's kind of interesting to see all of the, the projections for a recession that, you know, economists are putting out there. Certainly that could come to pass. On the other hand, though, there, there's a reasonable chance that we could see some softening in the economy without tipping into a recession. Just if, if the labor market stays strong, but slows, if wage growth slows, but stays decent, if, you know, consumers could continue to suspend, um, you know, there's still some pent up demand out there. People are kind of making up for lost time. Um, there's still elevated savings out there. So all those factors could help to kind of cushion the slowing in the economy. Um, you're also seeing European economies that are faring better than expected. You have China reopening that could help to pick up the global economy and kind of support, you know, some, some demand. Um, of course, the flip side to all of that, though, which I think is where you're going, is that if the economy is too strong, then you don't get the slowing in inflation that you need. And so you're trying to walk a very fine line about slowing things without tipping the economy into a recession. And hopefully that slowing is going to help to bring inflation down too. And that's that's the, the soft landing that you need in some sense, right? That's that's kind of the, the tricky path to walk. Yeah, that, that is what I was you know going to, to ask next, because it seems like there's a weird contradiction there where the the, the softer the landing becomes, the more active the Fed appears to need to be. And I wonder if actually this reacceleration of the economy, President Mester, your boss has argued in the past in favor of at least keeping 50 basis points uh, rate hikes on the table. I wonder if you think that's still appropriate given economic conditions. Well, I'll, uh, I'll leave the ex exact policy moves to the FOMC. I think, you know, let me, let me take the more general view. Um, so, you know, in general, monetary policy is playing a, a counter-cyclical stabilizing role. And so when times are bad, when inflation is low, uh, policy tends to ease to stimulate the economy and to boost inflation. When the economy is booming and inflation is too high, you tend to want to raise the policy rate to slow the economy and to bring inflation down. Um, and so you know, if you expect policy to act in that manner, then in an expectations there's an expectations mechanism that's at play whereby you, know, you kind of internalize what future policy is going to do, and that can help to temper demand today that helps to self-stabilize the economy. So it could be the case that the shocks hitting the economy are just very, very large and historically unique. And so maybe policy is going to need to do more to help to play that stabilizing role, or that the, you know, some of the fundamentals of the economy, the relationships of the economy have changed, and you're going to need to kind of offset those changes. Or you know, another possibility out there is that um, you know, we have shifting consumer preferences we have global geopolitical events, uh, you know, so maybe those things are changing like this neutral funds rate, going back to what we were talking about a moment ago. Um, you know, maybe if that neutral funds rate is higher than higher now than it had been in the past, then, you know, if you think about like policy rules, that would tend to suggest that maybe policy needs to be higher, move more 
to offset um, that move in the neutral funds rate. So it could be that, you know, maybe it's just that demand has more momentum and you're going to need to to offset that. Or, you know, maybe the, the economy fundamentally is just a little bit different now and you have to kind of offset that as well. So and I think that's where, um, you know, we have some policy rules on our website that help to think through different scenarios and different how the economy might behave and then what these rules would say that policy should do. And, you know, those are useful benchmarks to think about, okay, if inflation moves up, okay, you know, these rules would suggest that typically funds rate should respond to help to temper that inflation over time. But what kind of guidance do they offer? Like, what is the, what is, what are the various benchmarks? Is it like a one-for-one one move in the funds rate versus the actual inflation rate? Or are you looking at the inflation rate versus one-year expected inflation as measured in markets? Yeah, so that that matters a lot. So on our website, we have um, a suite of rules. We have seven rules uh, because there's no agreement on a single rule. So we look at seven different rules and we look at three different forecasts and we kind of come up with the different funds rates that are coming from those combination of rules and forecasts. So to your point, some of the some of the rules look at backward looking inflation. Some of them are forward looking. Some of them are looking at like an output gap. Some are looking at an unemployment gap. Some are looking at differences. There's different combinations of parameters. Uh, you know, so if we look at the median across all those rules, the median is saying um, that the funds rate should be around four and three quarters percent in the second quarter of this year, which actually isn't far from um, where policy is. But then the, those rules would suggest that policy uh, should start coming down in the second half of this year. And the reason why is that in our exercise, they're kind of taking the forecasts for the economy as given. And some of the forecasts that we consider have inflation coming down pretty quickly. So if inflation is going to come down pretty quickly, then policy doesn't need to do very much in the context of these rules because, you know, inflation is already coming down. By contrast, you know, one of the forecasts that we have in this exercise, which is all available on the Cleveland Fed's website, um, has inflation staying above 4% by year end. And in that case, um, the rules associated with that forecast tend to fall in about the 55 to 6.5% range, um, which would be consistent with the need to have somewhat tighter policy to bring inflation down over time. So in general, you know, one rule of thumb is that you want to move funds rate by more than one percentage point for every one percentage point increase in inflation. That's called the Taylor principle. And then that helps to stabilize inflation. So, uh, so that, that's kind of a, a, a typical rule of thumb. I think we'll leave it there for today, but I really appreciate your time, Ed. And uh, thank you again for joining FedSpeak. That was Ed Notek, Cleveland Fed Research Director. Thanks again. Thanks for having me, Pedro.